0: Well, of course that would happen. You know, on the first Sunday when the three-year-olds are in the church, of course it's the pastor's kid (laughs) that wanders up on stage during the music. (laughs) Of course that would happen. You can't complain though, you know, when we first came to this church, I think it was about seven years ago, there were six kids total in the whole building, the whole place and on a good Sunday. And so we're thankful for all the little ones, especially ours, we're thankful Anyway, I started you off last week with a little World War II illustration by way of introduction, and I have another one for you. You know, as Hitler rose to power in Germany in the 1930s, did you know there was a state takeover of the churches? German pastors were exalting Hitler as a type of savior, and one German pastor said, quote, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler, end quote. But not every German pastor was buying the propaganda, One dissenting voice came from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a rising German pastor and theologian who, during the time, he actively spoke out against Hitler's regime and his anti-Semitic rhetoric. Most of the churches in Germany were capitulating to the Nazis. So Bonhoeffer helped organize what was called the Confessing Church, which was an alliance of churches that maintained that Christ was still the head of the church, not Hitler, But as you can imagine, that didn't sit well with the Nazi regime. So in 1936, he was barred from teaching uh, theology at the University of Berlin. He turned his attention to teaching pastors in an underground seminary. Bonhoeffer also maintained contact with the German resistance, which opposed Hitler's takeover. But things were really heating up. So in June of 1939, he fled to America at the invitation of Union Seminary. And he could have stayed there and just wrote out the whole war, but his conscience wouldn't let him stay. And he said this in a letter, quote, I've made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I'll have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I did not share the trials of this time with my people, end quote. So he returned to America after just two weeks, and about a month later, World War II began. Bonhoeffer knew he was returning to a hostile environment. A Nazified type of Christianity could be accepted, but biblical Christianity could not be accepted there. He would likely be persecuted and probably killed if he returned. It makes me wonder, would you have gone back? If you were safe in America, just, just right out the war, would you have gone back as a leader? If knowing that meant you'd have to suffer with all your people, would you go back? If it meant you had to die for your faith, would you go back? Well, when Bonhoeffer returned, he was forbidden to speak in public or print. He continued to use his church contacts to seek resistance support. He was also helping Jews escape Germany. But his role in helping Jews escape was discovered. So in uh, April of 1943, he was arrested and imprisoned. There he stayed for two years, and after the failed assassination attempt on Hitler's life, some accused Bonhoeffer of being a part of that conspiracy, so he was sent to a concentration camp. And just two weeks before U.S. soldiers liberated that camp, he was hanged. Bonhoeffer left behind, though a witness of true faith, especially as a pastor. He felt he couldn't flee the persecution of the wolves while The sheep, his sheep, were being ravaged. He had to stand with them, which really meant standing with Christ. This is the cost of true faith. Didn't Jesus himself teach that, that the cost of discipleship is your life? In fact, before, while he was teaching at that underground seminary, Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. This was a call to radical discipleship, which is just normal discipleship. And it was a rebuke to the casual Christianity of the day. And in his book, Bonhoeffer contrasted cheap grace and costly grace. He said, quote, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, end quote. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer says, is to hear the gospel preached as follows, quote, now, of course you've sinned, but now everything is forgiven. So you can stay as you are and enjoy the consolation of forgiveness, end quote. But there's no demand for discipleship. Is that what Jesus taught? Bonhoeffer wrote this in a rebuke of the German Christians of the day, who they, they professed a faith in Jesus, but they clearly were not following Jesus. I mean, they confessed Jesus as their Savior, but that confession made really no impact on their lives. They weren't living lives of discipleship. They certainly weren't willing to suffer for their faith. It's not like they were going to die for Jesus and like oppose the regime. They're not going to do that. But is that even true faith? Did not Jesus himself say that whoever wishes to save his life will lose it? But he who loses his life for my sake will save it. The point is that saving grace is free, yet costly. Salvation comes as a free gift of God's grace. We don't earn forgiveness of sins or eternal life, but we receive them as a gift, God's grace gift through faith in Christ alone. But then once received, this grace demands your life. It's a costly grace. You come to realize Jesus is worth everything, your very life. And so when you come up with that, choice of risking your life or risking your safety versus risking jesus or denying jesus the true disciple is going to to choose jesus and that's the costly grace bonhoeffer was trying to impart to the german people and we would do well to heed that message because it's it's nothing but the biblical measure of faith true faith saving faith is perhaps most revealed when you're faced with Having to turn your back on the world and follow Christ, even in a time of risk. Bonhoeffer himself was faced with that test. Was he going to follow Jesus, even if it meant risking his life? Was keeping the faith worth more than his comfort, his security, even his life? And for him, it was. But I question what about you? Would you have gone back? What would be your response? You may never be faced with such a test, but your genuine answer, that's the measure of your faith. And true faith is willing to risk everything in following Jesus. And true discipleship does not involve a cheap confession, but a costly confession that will even accept suffering for his name's sake. So again, do you have such a living, active, true, saving faith? And for many weeks, we've been studying such a faith from James chapter 2. You can open there now in your Bibles. Turn to James chapter 2. Because James has been giving us the same picture of a costly faith, a living faith. Not an empty confession, but a faith that actually lives and works and acts and sacrifices. For some people, their faith is like the marine layer. At the first sign of heat It disappears. Like, where did it go? It's here. It's gone. It vanished. But true faith is lasting. It trusts God through thick and thin and reveals itself in obeying God, even when a lot is on the line. And today we're going to finish studying this landmark passage in James 2 on faith and works and just try and tie together everything we've learned and just drive home the essential nature of saving faith. Now along these lines, we'll start the brief word on what we've learned so far from this passage. James 2, 14 through 26 is the passage, the whole thing. And overall, James is responding to Christians who were the opposite of legalists. And the word for that is antinomians. Remember, it refers to those who believe that living the life and obeying God don't matter at all. You know, salvation is by faith alone, right? So if you confess with your mouth. Jesus, well, then you're saved. And it doesn't matter how you live. You kind of do what you want. But James writes to challenge this false notion of faith. Salvation is by faith alone. It's the only means of salvation. But although salvation is by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by works. Works necessarily flow from the very nature of saving faith just as it's in the very nature of a good tree to bear fruit. So it's in the very nature of a living faith to bear fruit, to to produce works, to, to do something, to follow. And therefore the person who makes a faith claim, but doesn't actually follow Jesus with his or her life reveals that their faith claim is empty, void, dead. Their faith is dead That's what James says in verses 14 through 19. He first gives us the picture of a dead faith. And dead faith is evidenced by a lack of obedience to God's word, a lack of fruit. The tree is barren of fruits. For example, he says in verse 14, what use is it, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? No, that type of faith cannot save him because that's a dead faith. Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And like Jesus himself taught, it's not enough to call Jesus Lord if you don't actually do what he says. And the true disciple, though, will prove himself by obeying and following. And accordingly, James next gives us the picture of living faith, verses 20 through 26. Dead faith, then living faith. He's not contrasting Faith and works as if these are two different modes of salvation. There's only one mode of salvation. It's faith alone. But he is contrasting dead faith versus living faith. Type of faith that can't save versus saving faith. And to explain living faith, James first uses the example of Abraham. Abraham was saved or justified by faith alone when he first believed. But James makes the point that Abraham's faith was vindicated or demonstrated as the real deal in that moment when he was going to offer up Isaac, his son. That's what James means when he says Abraham was justified by works. If you weren't here last week, get that message on our website. You want the long version of that. But in short, when James speaks of justification by works in this passage, he's not referring to a declaration of righteousness, but a demonstration of righteousness. In other words, the nature of Abraham's faith was demonstrated or vindicated when he was willing to obey God all the way. And the point is that's what living faith looks like. It's a faith that risks and sacrifices and obeys God at any cost. That's how deep Abraham's trust in God was. And is that you? Does that resemble your faith? Now, to finish up, though, last time we made it through verse 24, we didn't get to the final two verses in the chapter of James 2. We had enough to cover. and I didn't want to get bogged down. But in verses 25 through 26, James gives us a second example now, making the same point. But here he introduces a figure quite unlike Abraham. He uses Rahab, the harlot as another example of living faith. Now we could have quickly rushed through these two verses last time, but you know, I find here just a stunning example on its own worth exploring because in many ways, Rahab was like a Bonhoeffer of her day. She was willing to risk everything for her trust in this God. And so there's actually much to learn here about living faith. And so our aim this morning is simple, no special outline. We just simply seek to observe one more example of living faith that you might know and display a faith that works in your own life. This one more example of living faith that you might know and display a faith that works in your own life. So with that in mind, let's read the last two verses of James. Just finishing this chapter we spent a long time in. Hopefully this will tie it together. Verses 25 and 26. Where James says. In the same way. Was not Rahab the harlot. Also justified by works. When she received the messengers. And sent them out by another way. For just as the body. Without the spirit. Is dead. So also faith. Without works. Is dead. So here we find that. Rahab's example, joins Abraham as another example of justification by works. And I hope that term no longer troubles you. Again, if you're here last week, we learned that term justified can have the meaning of being declared righteous. And in that sense, justification is by faith alone. Like Paul taught, we are declared righteous by faith alone. But the word can also mean a demonstration of righteousness. And that's how James is using the term here so he's really using Rahab as a second example of a person with great faith. But the thing is, her faith claim was vindicated or demonstrated by her actions. That's the point of the example. Now, Scripture confirms Rahab really was a woman of great faith. We read earlier Hebrews 11, the faith hall of fame. In that same chapter, you know, the author has a lot to say about the example of Abraham, the father of the faith. But, but what do you know? Rahab shows up in that faith hall of fame. I'll read for you Hebrews 11, 30 and 31. It says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. She was a woman of faith, Revealed by her action of hiding the spies in Jericho. But the more you think about it though, the more Rahab's example really is set apart a, a special and unique in Scripture. And think of the contrast between Rahab and Abraham. Abraham was a patriarch of Israel. Rahab was a prostitute of Jericho. Abraham was socially and economically at the top of the ladder. Rahab at the very bottom. Abraham was known as the friend of God. Rahab and her people were known as the enemies of God. In fact, her people had been marked for destruction for their their serious immorality. And Rahab was a part of that wickedness for which they were being judged. But she was like a brand plucked from the fire, saved and spared. Her salvation came through faith the lesson here is that her faith wasn't alone. It was not just an empty confession, but it came with works and deeds and obedience and even more risk and sacrifice. This is probably why James brings Rahab up. There are plenty of examples of faith he could have used, like Hebrews 11 is full of a whole chapter of faith examples. But notice in chapter 2, James gives us two examples of faith in action, and they came at moments of great risk and sacrifice. And as Bonhoeffer noted, true faith is not revealed in the easy moments of life when there's no risk, there's no cost, but true faith is revealed when the cost is high. The risk may be your life and you still follow Jesus. That is living faith in action. And Rahab is is an example of such a faith That risks. She literally risked everything out of her faith in this God. And keep in mind, this was a God she barely knew. Her faith was the size of a mustard seed. But like Jesus taught, even a little faith, if it's real, if it's alive, even a little faith is enough to save and even do great things. Anyway, I think it's time now. We we need to go back, if we're going to dwell on this example, and relive Rahab's story. That we might really appreciate this example of living faith. There's a lot to learn about faith and works through Rahab's example. And her story really serves to to tie together everything we have been learning here in James 2. So let's let's do that now. Do you know where the episode of Rahab's faith is found? Joshua chapter 2. So turn back now to Joshua chapter 2. We'll spend a good amount of time here. Joshua Chapter 2. Now, I trust you recall the context here. This is after the Exodus. After the 40-year wilderness wandering. God had long ago promised Abraham and his descendants the land of Palestine as their inheritance. This was partly to bless Israel and partly to judge the wicked nations that were living in the land. The various Canaanite peoples were known for just an an intense immorality and idolatry. Like the days before the flood, God was not going to put up with their rebellion any longer. But instead of sending a flood to wipe them out, he was going to wield Israel as the sword of his judgment. And so by the time of Joshua, Moses has died. Joshua has taken over. He's going to lead the people in conquest you have all of Israel now camped out on the east of the Jordan River, the plains of Moab. The men of war have gathered. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan River to begin the conquest. But the first step is to scout it out. See what they're up against. And that brings us to Joshua chapter 2. You can look at verse 1. It says, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shatim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So they're coming from east of the Jordan River. Jericho would have been the first major city Israel would have encountered. And at the time it was like a bastion, a fortress. Some say Jericho is the earliest known fortified city. It had a mighty double wall with an earthen barrier in between, essentially impregnable at the time. There is going to be no conquering Jericho if something wasn't done about those walls, but that's its own story. Save that for another time. But these two spies enter Jericho and they wind up in the house of Rahab. This is actually a very strategic move on their part. We learn later Rahab's house was actually on the city walls, or likely in the earthen slope in between. And this was a perfect stop for a couple of spies who didn't want to venture too deep into the city. And furthermore, Rahab was a harlot or a prostitute. And these two spies were not interested in partaking in her immorality, but they knew that no one would think it suspicious for a couple of travelers to wind up at her house. Surely that was a common occurrence. But it still seems they were noticed, verse 2, says it was told the king of Jericho saying behold men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land and the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house for they've come to search out the land somehow these two men stood out and others discerned that they were up to something they saw them enter Rahab's house But they didn't suspect Rahab because she was accustomed to taking in travelers per her profession. But what comes next is a bit of an unexpected twist. Verse 4. It says, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. This is pretty unexpected. This is a wicked, immoral pagan. But now she's defending these strangers, these Israelites, hiding them, lying for them. These are the people that are about to like invade and destroy them. But she claims ignorance before the king and his men. Like, yeah, they came, but they left, don't know where they went. they already you know, exited the town and doesn't know where they are. Like a good citizen of Jericho, she, she hopes they find him. Like, go get them. I hope you find him. But it's all a guise, a ruse. Verse six, instead, it says, but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. So, at least for the time being, the king and his men, they're off the trail. They believed Rahab's testimony. They searched for the two spies on the way to the Jordan. Remember, that's the direction of the Israelites, so that makes sense. But, of course, they weren't to be found because they were still hiding on Rahab's roof. She had laid out some flax to dry, and so they were going to spend the night there, hiding, tucked away under all that flax. But first, she approaches them. And has a little conversation. Verse 8 says, Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Notice here, Rahab's three observations to these men. First, she knows that the Lord has given them the land. What stands out from that phrase to you? To me, it's curious because Rahab uses the proper name of Israel's God. It's saying in the Hebrew, Yahweh. When she says Lord, she's saying Yahweh. She had heard of this nation of Israel and she had heard of their monotheistic deity, Yahweh. She's also heard of their manifest destiny where this God of theirs had promised them the land she was living in and here they are, you know, with every culture being polytheistic at the time, Israel and their one God really stood out. They were known the rumors had spread and now they were feared. And so she also knows that the terror of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. People have heard about the exodus They've heard that, hey, there's a couple million of these Israelites like right over there. They're wandering in the wilderness and they're getting closer and I think they're going to invade. And so they're afraid. Also, verse 10, she says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, Whom you utterly destroyed. It had been four decades since Egypt was decimated by the 10 plagues and since Israel had escaped by way of the parted Red Sea. But these tales had spread far and wide. Israel's God had made a name for himself, which was the whole point of the Exodus. And furthermore, this mass of people, after wandering the wilderness for 40 years, they show up on the east side of the Jordan. They've already encountered two kings, two wicked kings, and they quickly dispatch them. And so the people living in the land know it's, it's just a matter of time before it's their turn. Could there be any stopping this tidal wave of conquest? Israel Was on their doorstep. And so everyone living in the land. Was afraid. And so Rahab says this. Verse 11. Speaking of Israel's approach. When we heard it. Our hearts melted. And no courage remained in any man. Any longer. Because of you. For the Lord your God. He is God in heaven above. And on earth beneath. All the the mighty men of war even them, their hearts melted in fear because of the invasion coming. But here in this verse, you can start to see how Rahab and her faith, her response is set apart from everyone else. Everyone was afraid of Israel at this point. But Rahab, she didn't just fear Israel. She was fearing Israel's God and even revering Israel's God. She came to recognize Israel's God, Yahweh he's the true God. She says he is the true God, heaven above, earth beneath. The Canaanites were known for believing in kind of regional deities, meaning like, you know, that's the God of the hills or the God of the forest or the God of the plains. But she came to realize, you know, there's only one God. There's only one true God and he's heaven of, or he, he's, he's supreme over you know, heaven above and earth beneath, like the whole thing. Isn't that pretty much akin to the Jewish confession of faith that Yahweh is the one true God? We can only surmise here, but I think it's safe to do given Rahab's response. But again, just think of the steady supply of travelers who darkened her door. But nonetheless, she would have heard many tales and stories of Israel, of the Exodus, all that had happened down there. And her heart wondered, could all these stories be true? And perhaps she heard of Israel's laws and statutes and, and realized this God, Yahweh, he's, he's a moral God. He's righteous. He's holy. And what a contrast to just the wicked deities of Canaan. who were basically like glorified, wicked, evil men. And what a contrast to her own people who lived in just this, this serious immorality. And what a contrast to her own life. She was a part of that. I think it's safe to say Rahab felt the tinges of conviction. And if such a God is is real, then he's supreme. I have no hope of standing before him. And now, what do you know? Here are two people from that people. Two guys from Israel. And of all the places they could have gone, that they wind up on her doorstep. In her house. Of all the places. What are the odds of that? But she saw in them this this confirmation of all the stories she had heard. Israel, the people, the Red Sea, their God. Everything seemed like now it it was real. It also seemed like this God's wrath was about to really be poured out on Jericho. And so in that moment, when she figured out who they were, and the king had come to find the men, she had a choice to make. You couldn't escape a choice. She had to decide something. She had a choice. The safe thing would have been just to report them. Just turn them in. Like, hey, they're they're actually hiding on my roof. Go get them. That would have been the easier thing to do. There's no risk involved there. In fact, she probably would have gotten a reward. I mean, after all, Jericho was a mighty city with double walls. Even a mighty army could not conquer Jericho. She'd, She'd be safe. And these were her people. Why should she commit high treason against her own people for Israelites, strangers, enemies. I mean, come on, parting the Red Sea, like that, like that really happened. And so, look, the safe move here would have been just, just turning the spies. But this is where Rahab's sapling faith is revealed. For she didn't do that. At some point, she came to truly believe in her heart that this God I keep hearing about, Yahweh, He is. The one true God. She believed in God. In verse 11, she confessed. This God is supreme. And we don't know when, but at some point that conviction came to her. She came to faith. But, you know, talk is cheap. Everyone around town was fearing Israel, talking about their God. You know, but did she really believe in him? Was she going to place her trust in this God? Would she even place her life in his hands by serving him and helping these spies. It's easy to make a faith claim that, you know, God is powerful. But it's hard to act on that claim when your life is on the line. And keep in mind, helping these spies was no sure bet. If she was discovered at all, that would mean certain death for her and her family. It's like Bonhoeffer in World War II If you're discovered helping Jews escape at all, like that's it for you. You're you're done. But the thing about true faith is there's really not much of a choice. True faith acts. It moves to follow God. It even risks all in service of God. And so Rahab made her choice. She put her neck squarely on the chopping block and she acted to help these spies to hide them, to, to secure them. That's faith in action. That's not all though, because knowing judgment was coming upon them. We also see in Rahab a, a plea for mercy, for uh, deliverance. Look at verse 12. She says next, Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab here doesn't appear entitled to anything. She knew that she was numbered among the enemies of this God and a righteous and a deserved judgment was coming, but she just pleads for mercy For kindness. She begs for favor from this God and his people. Asking to be spared and and delivered. Saved. And understand this too is a response of faith. It's like the parable of the publican and the sinner. There's no self-righteousness in her response. Rahab was a woman who was already broken and humbled by her sinfulness before a supreme God. and Her only recourse was just to beg for mercy. For favor. For Salvation. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Maybe the Lord will deal graciously with her. So she just casts herself on the mercy of these two spies and their people. She's trusting them with her life. That's faith in action. That's faith vindicated. This is what genuine faith looks like. It's a recognition. God is supreme. And so that's a real submission to his will. And a total offer of your life to him. And so you see, this is why James draws on Rahab as an example of living faith. He points to this moment right here as the time, not when she came to faith. She had come to believe in this God. But the time when her faith claim was vindicated. What was proven as real was demonstrated that she, she had come in this secret conviction in her heart. that This was the real God. Now it's time to act on that. And she did. Even in a time of risk. That's living faith. Is that you? Does that describe your faith? The circumstances obviously will differ, but would your faith risk life and limb to Do what is right, serve this God, follow him. Well, just to conclude the story now, the two spies indeed offer mercy to Rahab and her household. Look at verse 14. It says, so the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window For her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. After this, she gives them instructions for evading capture. They give her instructions for evading destruction. So long as she and her household are are gathered in that house, they'll be under Israel's protection. You fast forward to Joshua 6, you see a couple of miracles. For one, the walls of Jericho miraculously fall down per God's power. You know that story, but the other miracle is that Rahab and her house weren't destroyed when the walls fell down as she lived on or or in the middle of the walls. Her house was preserved and she and her family were delivered. You know, on its own, Rahab's story is such a testimony of God's grace because she wasn't righteous. She wasn't God-fearing. She wasn't moral. She was a wicked, unrighteous, pagan prostitute. But you know, God in his grace chose her, called her, extended mercy to her, redeemed her, made her his child. That's what God's grace does. In fact, God's grace went even further with Rahab. And did you know that God in his grace even made Rahab an ancestor of Christ? Matthew 1.5, the genealogy of Christ. She's an ancestor of King David, and then in turn, an ancestor of Jesus, Rahab, the prostitute. You might think she's so undeserving. How could God accept and and favor someone like that? Well, that's why it's called grace. You don't deserve it. God's favor is not based on merit or righteousness because we have none. We are all just as lost as Rahab, just as undeserving, just as unrighteous. Maybe in different ways we're all undeserving of God's goodness. And we all were standing square in the path of coming wrath. And for any to be saved, then it's going to take God's grace, his undeserved favor on some where they're plucked from the fire and made children of God. How can God be just though, and accept someone so wicked? But that's why Jesus came. God sent Jesus to die in the place of such sinners to to pay for their sins and to take the wrath of God on himself that we might be forgiven and, and made righteous. That is justification when God declares us forgiven in Christ and even righteous in Christ. And that comes as a gift, that justification, a pure grace gift that we access by faith alone. That's justification by faith alone. Rahab testifies to that. But as James points out, Rahab also testifies to justification by works, meaning that a true living faith is going to be demonstrated by its action. Intellectual assent in the facts is not enough to save you. You know, if Rahab didn't act on her faith, she would not have been delivered, she would have been destroyed. Rather, living faith is vindicated or demonstrated by actions, by works. And Rahab's faith was made known by her work of hiding the spies and and proven as as the real deal. And so James says, you know, back to James 2, to finish right after this, he says in James 2.26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Faith without works is like a decaying corpse. It's dead. Can't save. Just as a body has no life apart from the spirit, so faith has no life apart from works. And James doesn't say this to to suggest we need to add works to our faith before it comes alive. That's not what he means. He's simply saying that, look, if you have faith without works, it's like a hollow shell. It's an empty type of faith, like, like a snake that has shed its skin. There's nothing living on the inside. And so it's useless. It's good for nothing. That type of faith can't save you. And so you put it together from Abraham to Rahab to James himself. We've learned just the vital and vindicating role of works in our faith. Faith in Jesus saves. And you like Rahab can be saved from the tidal wave of coming judgment on this world justly. But you can be delivered by faith in Christ and faith in, in Christ alone. But just learn from James. It's got to be a real faith. It has to be a living faith. And a living faith is going to show itself by its works. This is especially the case in a time of risk or sacrifice or cost. Talk is cheap and people can easily be swayed to make a faith claim. You know, a lot of people, they, they sign up to follow Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. You know, theirs is a self-serving faith. You know, what can Jesus do for me? Man, how can a little religion make my life better? Maybe you, you want to improve your marriage, so you start going to church. Or, hey, we've got kids now. We probably should, you know, be a little more religious. Or just maybe make my life a little happier. But they fall short of ever truly bowing the knee to Christ as their masters, their Lord. You know, they're still really living for themselves. Fundamentally, their agenda, their life, their will. And you know, they've, they've tacked some Jesus onto it, but such people, they'll be proven true or false by their deeds, especially in times of testing. Isn't this what Jesus taught in the parable of the soils and the sower? You mentioned there's seeds sown in the rocky places, This refers to people who they hear the word and it says they immediately receive it with joy. Hey, this sounds kind of cool. Like this, this person likes what he hears. He's captivated and interested in this Jesus religion. Hey, it might better his life. So he visits a church. Maybe hears a good sermon or goes to a worship concert. and gets a little taste of a religious high. But as Jesus taught, he says he has no firm root in himself. His faith is not actually planted in the gospel or in Christ, but really just in himself and self-help. And so it says when affliction or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He comes and then his faith claim, like the Marine layer is gone. Like is it vanished? He's out of there. And listen, James' point is that it's easy to talk the Christian talk. It's easy to say you love Jesus. It's easy to raise your hands when you're moved by a worship song. It's easy to walk down the aisle when everyone's cheering for you. It's easy to attend church when it's like a social club. It's easy to pray when you already have everything you want. It's easy to talk about Jesus when you're in a small group with other Christians. Those things aren't bad. No, that's bad. I'm just saying it's easy. That, that's easy. This is the easy part of the faith because there's zero risk involved. There's no cost there. But again, notice in James, he he's making this point that living faith, it works. And he doesn't point to two examples, two simple examples of works like, you know, church attendance or Bible reading or giving money. Those are legitimate fruit, but... James points to two examples of faith in action in times of monumental risk. When literally life and death is on the line. But this is the ultimate fruit of true discipleship. So you know it's hard? It's hard to, by faith, bring a knife down into the heart of your son and sacrifice him. Because God told you to, even though it goes against every fiber of your being, like Abraham. Offering Isaac. That's pretty hard. It's hard to by faith hide a couple of spies of your enemies. And commit treason against your own people. When you don't know what's going to happen. You know I mentioned earlier Hebrews 11. The faith hall of fame. You might as well call that chapter the works hall of fame too. Because every example of faith in that chapter. Is demonstrated by what? By some great work. So you know what else is hard? It's hard to, by faith, build an ark because God said a flood is coming when everyone thinks you're crazy. It's hard to, by faith, go up against Pharaoh and demand that he let your people go when you have no power. Or a more contemporary example, it's hard to, by faith, stand up for Jesus when all the churches in the land are capitulating to Hitler as the head of the church. That's hard. It's hard to, by faith, accept the loss of your job as a teacher Because the city just ruled that anyone who even holds the view that transgenderism is wrong or sinful will be fired. It's hard to by faith be baptized when your whole family tells you you will be shunned from the family if you go through with this. It's hard to by faith identify with Jesus and his teachings in high school when all of your friends are going to ridicule you and ostracize you for being a Christian. It's hard to, by faith, remain in a difficult marriage when you don't feel loved, but you know you made a covenant before God. And it's hard to, by faith, stand up for life when your daughter, your granddaughter gets pregnant out of wedlock, and everyone else is telling her, so much easier, so much better for your future to just get an abortion. It's hard to stand up for life in that time. I could go on, but these are the real trials of faith. You may never encounter a time when your life is on the line, But you will encounter times of risk when your faith claims are on trial. You've confessed, I take it, most of you in here, you believe in Jesus. He's your Lord. You follow him. You say you you would follow him no matter what. Well, the time will come when we'll find out if that's true or not. And if you really believe or, or you don't. But I pray on that day, though, that your faith would be found true, real, living, Vindicated by works where you're going to do the right thing. You're going to follow Christ, like you said, no matter what, and honor God. That's what you signed up for, remember? Remember Jesus said, if you want to follow him, you first have to, you know, deny self. Pick up your cross, then follow him. But I tell you what, it's worth it though. Because he really is the way, the truth, the life. He's good. He's faithful. He really is the savior who can deliver you. And you want to know him as your savior because he's also the conquering king and the Lord of hosts. And you know, there's another conquest coming, a final conquest. There really is a judgment where Christ himself will return as that conquering king. And none will stand outside of him on that day. Only those with a faith in him will be Delivered, and I found you are found, or rather I pray that you'll be found true by faith in him today and, and on that day. You know, at the end of Joshua, Joshua says this to the people, well-known verse, Joshua twenty-four fifteen. He says, if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in the land you are living but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know that verse, right? But it still stands. Make your choice. Just figure things out. Is the God of the Bible the real God? I mean, he either is or isn't. Is he the one true supreme God? And is Jesus Christ, his really his son, the Lord, the Savior, the Son of God, God, the son really died and rose. You really believe he rose from the dead either did or didn't. So choose for yourselves, figure it out. But if he is, well, serve him, follow him, yield your life to him. He will care for you, but you must follow. And I tell you what's easy. It's easy to go to the Christian store and buy a plaque that says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord and hang it up on your door. That's not bad. I like those plaques, but it's just easy. That's easy. What's hard is to actually do that, to live that every day where you're actually going to, with your household, serve the Lord no matter what. But I pray today that you stand firm in the faith and that your faith is real. It's living. It's active. Your faith turns to conviction. Your conviction turns to action, even risk, where you may be found true and faithful Like the seed sown on the good soil that hears the word and believes and bears fruit. Some 30, 60, and 100 fold. Let's pray. Our good God, we we exalt you this morning. For you are our good God, merciful to us. We know that we were just as lost as Rahab. Not good, not righteous on our own. There were none good, none righteous. We all have sinned in many ways. Maybe not like Rahab, but we all fall short and are deserving of a judgment. Because you're, you're God who loves, but you're also holy. And you're just. You have to uphold that which is right. And that wasn't us. But we thank you that Christ has come, the Savior, to die in our place. To rise for our life, our eternal life and forgiveness. This is a, a testimony of grace. You're a God of grace. And we will remember your grace and, and praise your grace forever. In grace, though, we must follow. You call us to follow. It's a costly following of Jesus, a costly discipleship. And I just pray this morning that we are convicted and, and found true. It's only right for us to examine our faith. Would we hold up in time of trial, but strengthen us so that we will. That too is by your grace, Lord, but just building us. A true, living, active faith, a faith that even risks. Times of trial may come again for Christians in this land, but may we stand with those in, in Hebrews 11, with, with Rahab, with Abraham, with, with Bonhoeffer, with those who've come before that, well, as for us and, and our household, we're going to follow Christ, come what may. And we know in this you're glorified and, and we're blessed, for we will be with you forever. But just building us and working us that conviction that we might always stand firm. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.